You are listening to the National Arts Centre's Dance Podcast. In this first of four podcasts with Karen Kane, the NAC's Kathy Levy and Gerald Morris talk to prima ballerina Karen Kane about her early years. Growing up in Ancaster, Ontario, the joys and challenges of her seven years at the National Ballet School and her audition to join the National Ballet of Canada. Ms. Kane also discusses what a dancer needs to succeed in the profession. Karen, it's such a privilege to have you here. Thank you so much for giving us this time to uh, talk in depth about your life and your career Your name is extremely well-known all over Canada. I think that of all of the ballerinas and dance artists, Karen Kane is a household name. Even people who probably have not seen you dance know your name. There are many Canadian artists who leave the country in order to get their careers going. And uh, it's quite fascinating that you've stayed primarily in Canada, studying and dancing at the National Ballet, now running the company. And I'm just curious to get you to take us back a little bit to where it all started for you uh, in Hamilton and how this idea of becoming a dancer first uh, started for you in Canada. Oh, uh, first of all, I'm delighted to be here. And I love talking about myself. So <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Not really, but I will. That's great. <laughs> um, growing up in Ancaster, outside of Hamilton in the 50s, I didn't know about ballet. We did not have a television until I was probably uh, seven years old. And there was no ballet on television then. I really didn't know what it was, but fortunately my parents did. And for my eighth birthday... They took me to the Old Palace Theatre in Hamilton to see the National Ballet of Canada on tour uh, with Celia Franca in the leading role as Giselle. And uh, that was a Canada Council grant, by the way. I like to get that in. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that was my first experience of seeing uh, ballet, and I was completely uh, smitten. I, I actually can still replay in my mind Celia Franca's mad scene that 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 I have held on to, you know, all these years. She was incredibly dramatic, riveting. Um, And after that performance at eight, I asked my parents if I could take ballet lessons. I really thought I had found, you know, my calling. But I know that every little girl who sees ballet thinks that it's her calling. Mm -hmm. And then around, usually around 14, 15, 16, they find many other things that interest them a lot more. Um, for me, that that never happened. It remained my calling. Did but your parents say yes immediately? They did, and uh, they found a ballet teacher who where I could walk, um, and uh, I took ballet lessons uh, in her house, which was probably a ten minute walk away from where we lived, in her basement. Wow! And uh, I remember that. It's very funny now in retrospect. She had one record. <laughs> and it was Patty Page singing the Tennessee Waltz. Wow. And I did an hour of dancing to Patty Page <laughs> every week for a year. Was it a solo lesson or were there other <laughs> yes, young girls? No, it was a solo oh, lesson. Fantastic. And there was a, a couch in the basement and a kitty litter box. And I just spun around those <laughs> to Patty <laughs> Page. And after a year, she told my mother that she thought I should get point shoes. Now, my mom had been doing a little research, and she had read probably in McLean's magazine or something that you don't put an 8-year-old, a 9-year-old on 
point without a lot of training to make sure they're strong enough. And, and she, it occurred to her that maybe this wasn't the best teacher for me, and she found another teacher. And then I went to the old town hall in Ancaster, which was a bit of a, f- a bit further walk, but my mom would walk me there every Saturday morning. And uh, Betty Carey ran that school, and uh, she was the one who, after I had been there for a few, uh, probably a year, she took my parents aside and said, you have to take your daughter to the National Ballet School. And we had never heard of the National Ballet School. And we, you know, we were in Hamilton, it was close. Um, so my parents kind of said, you know, to me, do you, do you want to do this? Do you want, you have to audition and everything. And of course, I just love dancing. It was, it was magic for me. So I said yes. I had no idea what I was saying yes you, to. You didn't think of it like this is going to be my career or my calling. It was just I want to do more of this. Yeah. Uh-huh. And if people think, you know, and being encouraged by people around you that you're good at something, I mean, this is a motivator too. Of course. And, uh, other parents, apparently, I heard from my parents, like, uh, other parents would say to my, would be sitting watching the class and say, who's that little girl that looks like she's in a trance? <laughs> and my mother would sort of <laughs> puff up and go, that's my daughter, you know. <laughs> so other people sort of recognize something too, whatever whatever it was. Mm-hmm. But this teacher had the generosity and the, uh, the eye to see that I needed better training and maybe more intense training if I was going to follow this. And she sent me to the school. My parents drove me in, and Betty Oliphant, uh, they put me in a kind of senior class. And I did, I tried to follow the bar, but it was way too difficult for me. But she was just looking at my proportions and how I responded and how I responded to the music and all of that. And then after the class, I watched the the, um, the rest of the class, and I remember a couple of the young women were crying because they... You know, they didn't feel they were doing well enough or whatever. There are lots of tears in the dance world Mm -hmm. because you're measuring yourself against impossible perfection all the time and coming up against your own physical limitations or your own emotional limitations or whatever. It's constant. But it was pretty shocking for my mom to see this and wonder what she was getting her daughter into. And and for me, too, like, why is that girl in the back sobbing, you know, like, what, what's going on? Anyway, I learned all about that later on when yes. I was there. But um, at the end of the audition, Betty asked me um, to leave the room and come back into the studio pretending that I was a princess and I was addressing all my subjects and I was walking toward them. And, and you know, so I came into the studio and I went into my imagination, which is always my favorite thing to do for my whole career, and pretended I was whatever I thought I was in my little fantasy world. And my mother was weeping. And uh-huh. Betty said, okay, we're, we're going to take you in to the school. And um, I was still a little young, so I had to wait a while and, and uh, seven years of training. I have shivers hearing that story. I've got tears in my eyes. It's <laughs> incredible. And also that years later you can still recreate that and remember that yeah. moment for yeah. you. That's quite It was quite the amazing. beginning. And you know what? Without that school and without that recognition of my ability, um, my career would not have happened. So what was it like there? I mean, how did you Mm -hmm. adjust? I mean, you've hinted to a few things that you noticed even that first day, but seven years in, like, what were the ups and downs? Well, um, I had big issues around my weight and my height. 
I mean, I didn't have them. Other people had them. (laughs) (laughs) Your weight? Uh, Yeah, I was always struggling with my weight. So, you know, when I was 15, I put on about 10 pounds, uh, you know, for all sorts of reasons, Um, you know, just hormones kicking in and all of that and and not really understanding how to eat properly. And I was almost expelled for being caught in the local um, bakery because I was always going around the corner. It was out of bounds and I was was caught like buying bunches of cookies, you know. I obviously didn't know about all of that. Um, But, you know, they, they always sort of recognize my talent, but um, I, I went through a lot of ups and downs. And in the beginning, Betty Oliphant was all over me. Uh, she was so excited to have me in the school. And what that did was alienate my colleagues. And I was so miserable because she paid way too much attention to me in class. And it was out of her excitement and everything, but it, it wasn't a healthy way to start with a with an 11 year old 12 year old Mm -hmm. and uh so I had no friends for the first little while and you know leaving home at 11 because I moved into residence it's very very difficult I can't imagine my son's about to be 11 in two weeks and he's just beginning to consider sleepover camp you know just like maybe for a couple of days (laughs) well again I didn't really understand what it meant Mm -hmm. to go to a boarding school and to and to study a discipline that is so demanding. You can't know as a child. And my parents didn't know either. None of us knew. Um, so I was dreadfully homesick and, um, you know, had this problem with my peers being um, resentful of the special attention I got. Well, once I put on a few pounds, that special attention went right out the door. <laughs> No, I don't think I did it on purpose, but it was pretty clear that suddenly my talent wasn't so evident. <laughs> um, and then I had lots of friends and I was actually happier, but you're still going through teen, you know, being a teenager, it's just gruesome. Mm-hmm. And I was morbid and I, you know, I found poetry I would write at that time, with just the darkest, most hideous stuff, you know, that you that you think is a teenager and, you know, having crushes on people that you think it's the end of the world, the love affair, you think you're Romeo and Juliet, you know, and a few months later, it's yeah. like all over. Yes, all exactly. those things that everybody goes through. And when you're in an intense environment like that, and you're doing not only your entire academic work, but all this ballet training on top of it and working on weekends and studying for exams and it's very intense. Did, did you have times during that period where you just said, forget it, this isn't for me? And mm-hmm. if you did, how did you get through that? I had regular times where I wanted to leave and where I'd, I'd call home and I'd be crying and they'd say, forget it. My mom would say, why don't you just be a normal kid and come home <laughs> oh, yeah. and go to a regular school and have a normal life, you know? Um, and I'd think about it for a while and there was no way I could leave. I was, you know, completely... Addicted is the wrong word, but obsessed with dancing. And there was one summer where my parents insisted that I was not going to do summer school. I was going to come with the family. We were going to go to Winnipeg. We were going to visit all our relatives. We were going to spend time on the farm and all, you know. And I was not going to dance all summer. I was just going to be with my family. So we did that. And I was just missing dancing so much. I think I was 15, and that was the year that it, it, the, the penny dropped for me. This is, this is what I want. Right. And I can't ignore it, and I can't 
pretend it isn't and I can't distract myself. This is what I want to do. Were you interested in the academic subjects too, or was that just you had to do that, but really it was just for the dance? I actually liked school, uh, not every subject. Um, I, I would get really high marks in everything except math. <laughs> <laughs> and I would barely pass math. And, you know, some of my colleagues would try to coach me. And I, I would work really hard at it, but I just didn't get it. And my father insisted that I continue in math because if I ever wanted to go to university that I needed to have that. And, and he was right. And I never went to university, but um, I, I, I needed that. I needed to know, too, that... that uh, Sometimes even hard work, you have limitations, and sometimes even hard work and determination don't surmount the limitations. And um, I could never get my mind around uh, that. But if it was English or history or any of those things that I loved, I would, I would do really well. Um, and, and I had a really good memory, um, which I no longer have, so I really <laughs> appreciate it. I, I mean, the relationship, obviously, between the school and the company has been strong. So were you also guesting in some of the productions, like Nutcracker and those kind of productions, where they went to the school, where the company went to the school for, for students? <laughs> well, funnily enough, uh, I was too tall. And oh. I was, at 12 years old, I was the same height that I am now. And so I was considered too tall to be a Nutcracker. So all of my school chums would get to go on tour with the company and dance in Nutcracker and, you know, be the little clowns and the children and all of that. But I didn't look like a child. And uh, I would be the only one. I can remember sitting in, in, I was still in, you know, before the Christmas holidays, I'd be the only one in the academic because all the rest of them were at rehearsals. And they went to Washington on tour and they went to Vancouver on tour and they went to Ottawa on tour and I was too tall. But it's okay. I got my revenge. <laughs> well, that's for sure. But isn't that a funny kind of juxtaposition? On the one hand, you're, you're talking about their kind of rejection or, or resentment of you because of the, the way you were singled out. And then, as you say, on the other side of it, because of that, you weren't able to participate in some of the group events. Yeah, yeah. So what were your earliest memories on stage? I mean, were, were there any ballets you were allowed to participate in at that at that point? I never performed with the National Ballet of Canada, okay. no. Um, I actually did something with the Canadian Opera Company, yeah. um, you know, and I guess it was a break, and a number of us were vestal virgins, <laughs> and we, we did... And you we could be all, a tall vestal virgin, yes, I guess. Yes, they didn't mind, as long as you looked young, it was fine. Um, I did, you know, school performances, a uh, little... Uh, lecture demos and things they'd take us to Oakville and you know we'd be in a school auditorium or you know things like that but um, that was in my day one of the things that was really lacking in our training now they have the Betty Oliphant Theater and they actually get to perform on a real stage with real lighting and everything I had no experience uh, per, you know as a professional uh, by the time I joined the company in 1969 I'd never had any professional, like, you know, real performances, just demonstration. Just to stay with the school for a few minutes before we uh, launch into that, do you remember at the time when you would, I assume, go see the company, who the ballerinas were that oh, were inspiring course. you? And what were you thinking in those days about those, those well, women? Well, you know, Romeo and Juliet, I remember, uh, it was 1964, and Galina Samsova was the first Juliet in the company, and she was a R Russian trained, I think she was from Kiev, 
in Ukraine or something, but she had that. I'd never seen a Russian-trained ballerina before. Um, of course, I remember Martine Van Hamel. I remember Lois Smith. I love Lois Smith. We, we did see the company all the time. We were taken to see them, so we knew every dancer. Um, you know, Earl Crawl. I was completely in love with Earl Crawl. Um, anyway, there were, there were wonderful dancers then. And, of course, Veronica. I watched Veronica. I also joined the school the same year that Veronica and Martine graduated. Uh-huh. So I saw their graduation performance in the big studio at the school. Um, so I knew them. And there were others that didn't go on to have careers who, for various reasons. I mean, I always remember this young woman called Michelle Starbuck, who was an extraordinary dancer. And for various reasons that I not even I don't even know, she didn't have a career. She was kind of a large, muscular dancer, and uh, she wasn't taken in the company, and and it was a shame because she was extraordinary. But oh, I knew I knew everyone. Lawrence Adams, his Mercutio, mm. you know the memories. I mean, and we had really little exposure to anything else. Oh, we did ha- we did go to the Maple Leaf Gardens once because you remember this is before the Hummingbird or the O'Keefe sure. or whatever. And we saw Lynn Seymour and Rudolf Nureyev with the Royal Ballet in La Sophie. Wow. Oh, this is one of my favorite stories. I'm glad you made me write it. <laughs> so we were in the Greys at Maple Leaf Gardens. And if anyone's been there, they know that it's so far away. Nosebleed seats. Yes, <laughs> really. Um, and they'd built the stage at one end, and, and they you know, did La Sophie, and it was wonderful. And um, we were with our chaperones in a big group, and I got it in my head that I was going to get an autograph from Rudolf Nureyev and nothing was going to stop me. And I talked to a couple of my little girlfriends. We had our little school uniforms on, you know, the little plaid skirts and everything. Oh, yeah, that's right. And uh, we broke away from the group and we somehow found our way through the scaffolding and up the side of the stairs onto this built stage on on top of the ice rink, you know. Mm -hmm. And... um, then there was security clearing everybody out, and I hid behind the scenery, and my two <laughs> friends got cleared out. And I was quivering behind the scenery with my program in my hand, and the stagehand came along and said, what are you doing here, and you know, what do you want? And I said, I'd really like an autograph from Mr. Nureyev. He said, okay, come with me. So <laughs> he took me uh, to his dressing room and brought me in, and Rudolph was in the middle of an interview. He had a microphone in front of him. He was talking. And it was a good thing because I couldn't have spoken. I was completely, you know, I was shell-shocked. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe he was standing there and I was this close to him. And and the stagehand kind of took my program, gave it to him, you know, got a pen. And, and he didn't even really look. He just was writing his name. And, and then we were leaving and Lynn Seymour came in. And, you know, the epitome of the ballerina, like she had the fur coat on and the roses, and she kind of <laughs> wafted in and kissed him. And her, and I was witnessing all this. Oh, my gosh. Meanwhile, the, the chaperones had the police looking for me. <laughs> <laughs> what year are we talking this? Um, well, it was mid-60s. Okay. You know? Right, yeah. And... Um, 
then I, you know, the stagehand showed me how to get out the back door. And I, <laughs> I staggered out on the street, and, and there they were, all the students in a clump. Oh, and, and, of course, I was in big, big trouble. <laughs> I, I hope you took great pleasure in telling Nuriev and Lynn Seymour that story. Well, actually, Rudolph really didn't like to hear that I had been his child when he was dancing. Oh. <laughs> he, I told him that once quite gleefully, and he didn't take it very mm, well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and now I can understand that because people come up to me and say, I saw you dance when I was four. <laughs> And it makes you feel just ancient. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. So that was that was a fun uh, memory at the school. Karen, when you were at the school, what was the proportion of boys to girls? Very few boys, Very few. of course. But I do remember um, Frank Augustine. He, he was younger than I was, and uh, so he wasn't in my class. I mean, I did have there – were, there were, I think, four boys in my class, and they all – were pretty good, and they some of them joined the company, some of them didn't. But um, and I, you know, I won't give their names because it won't uh, at this point mean anything to anyone but them and me. But uh, <laughs> but I do remember Betty taking my hand one day and saying, "You have to see this young man. He's the next Eric Brune." Oh. And 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 so she cracked open the door of the studio, and I'm looking at this, and he's like this skinny, pimply. <laughs> I'm going the next Eric Brown. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and it was Frank. It was Frank Augustine. <laughs> yeah, but you know, she had an eye because he ended up being, you know, really handsome and this beautiful line and this beautiful lyricism. And his career was short, but it, but when he was at the height of his powers, he was very special. So the competition even back then must have been fierce, particularly for the girls. Has it yeah. changed at all today? I mean, just to keep on the school idea for a few minutes, is is it more difficult to get in? Is it is it, mm. it has it changed? No. Has the training has changed, I assume? Um, the training is better. It's more well-rounded. Um, and I think they take better care of them. Not that it still isn't incredibly difficult to be a teenager and to be training in a profession that's so demanding, uh, you know, before you even have grown up enough to know what you're really involved in. Um, I think it's still very, very competitive and very difficult, and I don't think that's ever going to change. I mean, when you're talking about the level of excellence and demands that these people, ha these young people have to deal with every day at, at that stage. I mean, most young people still haven't figured out what they want to do with their lives by the time they're 20. These young people know that their career's already got to be in full gear by the time they're 20. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a really, really tough profession, and I never want anyone to go into it without um, seriously considering how short it is, how hard it is, how little you get paid, you know, all of that. Uh, you have to be really obsessed with it. You have to really want it badly to put up with. I mean, it's also wonderful. I mean, it's a wonderful profession. If you don't have the physical abilities and the and the mental abilities, it really is the wrong career to choose. And if the really sad thing is when people have the mental capability and the desire and the musicality and and don't have the physical capabilities. And they deal with that frustration endlessly. And it's really hard to get a job. Um, of course, there are too many young artists being produced, that, and there aren't enough jobs for them. Mm -hmm. That was always the case. Um, fortunately, 
the dancers at the National Ballet School are so well-rounded in their training that they can find other companies that suit them better if they can't get a job in Canada. So a lot of the, the graduates end up being in contemporary dance companies in Europe. Right. And I great. guess we've got a limited number of companies in Canada, whereas other mm-hmm. countries or other places in the world have much more to choose from. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Are you? Do you speak to the students a lot now as, uh, you know, and tell them some of these things and share some of this um, advice with them? Occasionally. And um, there have been times that I've worked with the school. Um, before I became the artistic director, Mavis asked me to restage the second act of Swan Lake for the students for their showcase at the end of the year and so I spent from September to May two hours a day um, working with them and some of those young people are now in the company but I felt I got to know a lot of them from you know they were they were like 12 13 14 they were you know all these young women mainly mm-hmm. um, and uh, I watched their like I like I like to watch the careers and see how they progress because I have to make decisions whether or not I will take them as apprentices when they get to be 18. Mm-hmm. And I, I like to have watched them to see over the years, you know. How they've grown. How they've grown. Well, mm-hmm. let's just go back to when you were 18 and you were making that transition. Tell us what you remember about being accepted into the company and some of the first roles you performed. Well, the first thing I remember was that um, I had to audition and that, that Betty gave us a two-week warning that Celia Franca was going to be coming to uh, audition us for the company. And, and she pointedly said to me, you know, and you're overweight, and, you know. So um, I, and I do not recommend this to anyone, but I was really <laughs> desperate. I ate nothing but lettuce and tomatoes for two weeks, and I dropped 10 pounds. <laughs> How did you Very, get through dance class on lettuce and tomatoes? Well, willpower. Yes, obviously. Yeah. Tenacity. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's a really stupid thing to do. But um, but I did get a job. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing I did was the minute I was told that she had accepted me into the company, I ran around the corner to the pastry shop. And the Forbidden Bakery. <laughs> and there I was again. <laughs> Oh, this is not a, anything that I recommend for anyone to do. not do. try this at home, no, folks. No, do not. <laughs> you have been listening to the NAC Dance Podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nacpodcasts.ca. There you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and easy instructions on how to subscribe. You can also easily subscribe to this audio program series in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Just search on NAC Dance. So until next time, this is Gerald Morris with the National Arts Centre in Ottawa. Thanks for listening. <laughs>